0: As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you, fan to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear but of power and love and self-control. This is the word of the Lord.
1: All right, well, roughly a year has passed since the last letter that he's received from his dear friend. And Timothy has been hard at work in the church of Ephesus, taking to heart the things that Paul has instructed him in. And yet, false teaching remains. It remains a problem in the church, and divisions they arise. And in the midst of this, Timothy receives the letter that we are starting today. But just as it is with Timothy, not everything is sunshine and roses for Paul right now either. See, Paul finds himself in prison at this point. He knows that he is likely there until his death. We find out later that not only is Paul in prison, but those whom he thought would be at his side are not. The situation is bleak in worldly terms, and yet he writes this letter to Timothy. And as we start this new series in 2 Timothy, I want us to think with a sober mind about the reality that Paul is facing. It's not a reality that many of us have faced, yet this is a reality that has been Common throughout the church in history, Paul is writing in the face of death. And what is it that he wants for Timothy? Is he seeking comfort for himself? Is he seeking for Timothy to come rescue him from prison or from death? No. Paul's message in the book of 2 Timothy is loud and clear carry on the fight. Carry on the fight, Timothy, because I won't be able to much longer. It might seem like this would be a very desperate letter then, a message filled with despair because it feels like the battle is lost. But we find out that this letter, rather than being a dirge or a lament for the loss that is occurring, it's actually an encouragement. It's an emboldenment to fight for the crown, to fight The good fight for King Jesus, to store up the great blessings of a hard-fought life well-lived. To sum up the book in a sentence, we could say that though the gospel work seems lonely, we carry on the fight for the crown of life. In our passage today, we see that Paul offers his first of several ways to do this. We fight for the crown by remembering our spiritual heritage. And Paul communicates this in three different sections here. First, in Paul's relationship with Timothy, if you're taking notes, these are, these are your main headers here. First is Paul's relationship with Timothy. The second place we see is Paul's remembrance of Timothy. And then finally, Paul's reminder to Timothy. So here's the main point of our passage for today just like Timothy, our shared faith encourages and sustains us in gospel ministry. I'll say it again because I know it's not on the screen. Our shared faith encourages and sustains us in gospel ministry. So in this first section in verses 1 and 2, we see Paul's relationship with Timothy. Paul starts off his letter with a greeting much like any other letter, but Often we tend to read over this quickly and try to get to the meat of the book, right? But as anyone who has ever written an essay or done any public speaking, really anybody who's tried to communicate anything at all, we all know that if you mess up the beginning, then everything else is off, right? The same is true here. If we skip the opening of this letter, then we miss the foundation of it. We miss not only the foundation, but the tone of the letter. So how does Paul start then? Well, I will uh, tell you a little story here that will hopefully illustrate uh, this a little bit better. I had an opportunity to actually work through this passage with a group of men a while ago, and there was something that happened and that kind of stood out. This question was asked, and we all said, "Okay, well, who is in this section? These first, you know, seven, these seven verses or so." And we went around, and we answered, and everybody said, well, there's Paul. Okay, yeah, that's that's pretty good. And Timothy, like, duh, it's Second Timothy. It's in the name of the book, right? Like, he's there. Oh, but, and then, you know, there's Lois, his grandmother mentioned. And if you're really astute, then there's Eunice, his mother. And then the really, really smart people said, well, it talks about Paul's ancestors, too. Okay, that's pretty smart. And this is the point where we all looked around the room and we nodded and we felt pretty good about how critically we could read the text and pull things out but listen to Paul here Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus by the will of God according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus to Timothy my beloved child grace mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord this is just the first two verses of the book Paul names names seven times, and five of them belong to God, and we all missed it. So what's the point of this? I think that Paul is intent on drawing Timothy's eyes to Christ, drawing his eyes to the reality that the apostleship that Paul has, the one that he's been called to, is one that's by the will of God and according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. Paul is doing more than reminding Timothy of his credentials here. He's more than a teacher or authority in his life. Listen to how Paul actually addresses Timothy. To Timothy, my beloved child. The relationship of Paul to Timothy is that of a beloved father to his son. And every parent knows that kind of love when you see that first heartbeat and you're proud. When you see them suffer heartache and your heart aches too. That great compassion that a father has, it's the same kind of love that Paul has for Timothy. But that love is not the fundamental core of their relationship. And Paul's reminding him of that here. Paul makes it clear that his love for Timothy, his relationship with him, is built not on simple affection. There's nothing biological happening here that would draw them to each other, nor is it just some sort of generic care for a fellow man. His love for Timothy is founded in, is rooted in, the relationship of Paul to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who called him on the road to be a disciple and apostle, who turned the Christian hating and persecuting man into the great missionary, apologist, church planner and writer of the majority of the New Testament. The Jesus who said to this arrogant Jew, you go and tell the Gentiles about me. And now he writes with deep affection to Timothy, born of a Greek father and Jewish mother, a filthy half-breed in the mind of the man before Christ, a half-breed then and now to him a son. Friends, this kind of love could not exist without the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, Paul was a man of great allegiance. In his belief that he was serving the true God, the God of his ancestors, Paul was persecuting the children of God. Yet Christ saw fit to take this man full of zeal, and he said, that one's mine. And Paul's great zeal now pointed toward the true fulfillment of that old faith That he loved so dearly resulted in a life of faithful allegiance to Christ the King. And apart from this, Paul and Timothy have no place together. Yet here, they gather in the household of faith. And I want you to take great comfort in this. This is the same household of faith that we belong to. So thinking of his beloved son, Paul continues, grace mercy, and peace. Not from Paul, as if he could somehow manifest such things, but from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. But how can Paul be so confident to extend such great gifts to Timothy in this way? How can a man offer the grace of God or the mercy of God and the peace of God to another man? Well, with confidence— there's no doubt here in his mind. There's no, well, if it be your will, God, then grace and mercy and peace to Timothy. If, if you could do that, please, we'd love that. That's not how he phrases it. But how can this be? Psalm 4 8 says, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Luke 2.14, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those who... Whom he is pleased. 2 Corinthians 9 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Ephesians 2 4 through 6. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised up with Him, and seated us with Him. In heavenly places in Christ Jesus. See, Paul confidently extends grace, mercy, and peace, the grace, mercy, and peace of God, in fact, to Timothy, not because it's Paul's to give, but because it's already extended to Timothy in Christ Jesus, their shared Lord in their shared faith. Every aspect of the relationship Paul has with Timothy is shot through with gospel realities. The very same Jesus who stopped Paul on the road to Damascus is the same Jesus whom Timothy serves as Lord. And church, the same is true for us today. The primary and fundamental reality that defines who I am to you and who you are to me and who we are to each other is our shared Lord and King, Jesus Christ. So my application for us from this section is twofold. First, love each other like we share the faith. Love each other like we share the faith. But what does that look like? Well, it looks like striving for unity. It looks like overlooking small offenses. It looks like actually committing to time with each other, participating in corporate worship. And I don't mean just showing up to corporate worship. I mean making an effort. Let me give a little illustration here. I work from home. And when I'm at home, my efforts and my performance don't change. I'm expected to work and by God's grace I work diligently and I ensure that my work is good work. And I don't only do this for my employer, but I do this because I'm called to do so as a Christian. But there is a difference. When I'm in my basement on a camera as when I'm opposed to when I'm working from the office. See, when I'm working from home, I make sure that I am presentable. I make sure that I am adequately prepared and engaged for the day. But sometimes I'm wearing gym shorts. It's true. Listen, that's just not going to fly in the office. Now, I don't have to dress fancy or anything, but I do have to dress appropriately. I'm not going some, down some rabbit hole about dressing appropriately here because that's not the point that I'm making. Here's what I'm talking about with this illustration. When I go into the office, there is a level of effort that is required, and anything less would actually be disrespectful. I show up on time. I show up prepared. I show up dressed appropriately. I make sure that it's apparent that this time matters. And that's what I'm talking about. When we love each other like we share the faith, we put the kind of effort that communicates that this faith matters. That shows up in how we prepare for our gatherings. It shows up in our participation in those gatherings. It shows up in the way that you sing. It shows up in the way that you pray, how you pay attention to the words preached from the pulpit. It shows up in what you make a priority. So prioritize the gathering. Prioritize each other. So like Paul's relationship to Timothy, is our shared faith in our shared Lord shown across, or shown in our actions? Is it shown as that foundation of who we are to each other? We need to ask that question of ourselves. In every way that it's not, we need to repent. Let Christ be the foundation of our relationships between you and me, not the things that we just happen to like or share in common. Second application for this section. Confidently extend and accept gospel realities with each other. I'll say it again. Confidently extend and accept gospel realities with each other. Just as Paul extends the grace, mercy, and peace of God to Timothy, so let us do so for each other. There are many times that we need correction, and so often we also need encouragement, but I think Paul here is focused on the latter, so let's focus on that too. When your brother in Christ is discouraged, what truths from God's word can you offer as a balm for that sore? What gift of encouragement can you be? What good gift can we point to in someone's life to say, things may look down now, but remember how God has done this in your life? Now, this kind of application, it requires The kind of community that we just described, a community where that shared faith matters, a community that actually knows each other, so that when I'm discouraged by the fight of the ministry that God has called me to, or when I'm discouraged by my own sin, a brother can come to me and say, Coleman, but don't you remember how God delivered you from that? Don't you remember when you were riddled with sin and God had mercy on you, how He gave you grace? It gave you peace in your time of trouble. Church, we need this, but I think sometimes we will find it easy to extend those gospel realities in our lives, and we find it difficult to accept them. And the problem is, is that in my deepest heart, I know exactly how sinful I am. I may be ignorant to what some of those sins may be but I know what I'm capable of. I know how truly sinful I am as a man. And when a brother sees me in the pit of my despair and reminds me of my forgiveness in Christ, my new station in Christ, my inheritance in Christ, it's really easy to say, oh, brother, you just don't know. And how could they know, right? How could my brothers know how sinful I truly am? And here's the truth, they can't. But there is one brother who does. And he knows more than any one of us. He knows every sin we commit, even the ones we aren't aware of. He knows every sin we will commit. And Christ, our King, our brother in the household of God, the one who purchased our shared inheritance with him by his own blood, says to us, just like he said to Paul, that one's mine. Romans 8:1 says there is therefore no now or there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And if the king of the universe has extended grace to you, then who are you to think that you can reject it? Church, be confident in extending and accepting gospel realities with each other. Not on the basis of or dependability of each other but on the authority of Christ our King. And so we move into now our next section, having looked at Paul's relationship with Timothy. We look at Paul's remembrance of Timothy in verses 3 to 5. When Paul thinks of Timothy, he is reminded of all these gospel realities himself. He remembers Timothy with thanksgiving. He says that he remembers him constantly in his prayers, night and day. He longs to see Timothy, to be filled with the joy experienced by those who share in the fight together. He thanks the God that he serves for Timothy. And what is it that Paul is reminded of specifically? Timothy's sincere faith. And this is important. It's where much of the meat of our passage lies today. Paul paints a picture for us of a heritage of faith. We noted the gospel foundations necessary for a Jew like Paul to see a mixed Gentile with any level of affection. This was probably a common problem at the time. The level of ethnic vainglory of the Jews at this point in history was unmatched. Consider this. The Messiah came to the Jewish people, and they rejected him because they thought he wasn't Jewish enough. I don't mean the stuff about the law. What I mean is that Christ came... And he was the perfect fulfillment of the entire Old Testament, and the Jews still rejected him. He wasn't interested in the political power of the Jewish people. He was interested in all nations and reconciling all of creation to himself. And because he wasn't about Jewish power exclusively, he wasn't Jewish enough to be king for them. He didn't take his throne the way that they thought he would, so they reject him. But to be clear, it's not a matter of Christ offering himself as king as an option and the Jews rejecting the offer. It's a matter of Christ being king and the Jews rejecting the truth. But hold on a minute. Paul said that he thanks the God whom he serves, as did his ancestors. And if Paul says that he serves the true God of his ancestors, the Jews, and he serves Christ Jesus, then who do the Jews who reject Christ serve? I think Paul's point is this. Christianity is the continuation of the Old Testament faith, not Judaism. Any faith that rejects Christ Jesus, his exclusive claim to divinity, his exclusive claim of authority over all things, i.e. his kingship, is a road straight to hell. This is what they did when Christ came. It's what they do now. Paul doesn't say, faithful judaism but faithful in christ this is service to the same god of my ancestors this is important what does paul say to timothy about his faith yours is sincere it's the same thing you have the real thing timothy don't worry about your mixed parentage Your Greekness does not exclude you from the faith of my ancestors because the true faith of my ancestors doesn't find its fulfillment in your Jewishness. It finds its fulfillment in Christ our Lord. You have the real thing. Many of us grew up singing this song in church called Father Abraham. It's basically Christian hokey pokey. But it actually conveys this reality that's so biblically rich and pertinent to our message today. Listen to the words. Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. Listen, I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Amen. Paul affirms this truth in his letter to the Romans. In chapter 4, he explains that it's not those who adhere to the law who are the children of Abraham. It's those who share in the faith of Abraham who are his children. Paul is saying pedigree does not exclude you from the gospel, and Timothy is a great example of that. Many of you come from a home where faith was weak. Many of you come from a home where there was no gospel at all. Your parents may have been actively opposed to Jesus Christ, And yet there is a place for you. If King Jesus has called you, then that background doesn't matter. Sure, it affects your life. Sure, it's going to be really hard for you. You won't know what to do or what to say, how to raise your kids or anything like that. I understand that, but take hope. Timothy's father wasn't a believer. The brokenness of your heritage doesn't have to define you. And there are many Pauls in the church dying to be a father to you. This is the picture of how the gospel takes the good and natural family order, and, and in the church, it's expanded. We have the opportunity in the absence of a heritage of faith to be given a heritage of faith through the body of Christ. Now, with that in mind, Timothy didn't come from a completely broken home, and despite the brokenness of Timothy's unbelieving father, which is a most vital role in the life of every child, we also have this beautiful example of the intended generational faith that is expected by those who have true faith. And I say that generational faith is expected because I believe that is true. Exceptions to this rule do exist. Let me tell you, they are heartbreaking. I don't say that just to pay lip service to the exceptions of generational faith. When I say exceptions exist, I see faces. It's people I know and people I love. the exceptions are some of the deepest pain we can experience. But we don't let our experience dictate Scripture. And Scripture speaks... Not a bleak word for faithful homes, but a hopeful word. Acts 2, 38 and 39 says, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Listen, for the promises for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Proverbs 22, 6 says, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 7. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Deuteronomy thirty-two, twelve: Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of his, this law. One more, Joshua twenty-four, fifteen. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers or the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The Bible expects generational faith. We cannot let the reality of the painful exceptions deter us from righteously and joyfully pursuing it. Paul says, I am reminded of your sincere faith. Listen, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. That faith, the faith of Paul's ancestors, the faith, it's the faith of Paul, it's the faith of Grandma Lois, it's the faith of Eunice, it's the faith of Timothy, and all of that is the true faith. It's the same faith as me and you. And I pray to God Almighty that it is the faith of my children, my grandchildren, and their children. Deuteronomy 7:9 says, "Know, therefore that the Lord, your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations." Church, we have hope for our kids. Don't let the exceptions or theological presuppositions keep you from embracing this reality. A heritage of faith is not a lie. it is a promise. That reality may look different than we expect, but it is true. So the applications we have here, it's specific in in specific ways for a few different people. First, I want to talk to parents. For you, here's my application. Have a faith worth desiring. Give your children a robust faith to hold on to. Take no half measures. Be all in. The way I see parents fail most often, it's born from a desire actually to love their kids well, but in desiring to love their kids well, they make their home child-centric. It's a place where wanting, making the wants of the kids the center, they feel like they have the need to give their children all these different opportunities, and that becomes the focus of the home. Listen, I'm going to give specific examples here. And as your elder, as your friend, and as your brother who loves you, I absolutely intend to step on your toes in the next few minutes. Listen, I'm not telling a joke. I'm actually serious here. I know that was going to hit, and so I made that note in case people laughed. It's not because I'm mean-spirited. It's because I care, and I care about you, and I care about your kids. I care about your faith carrying on to the next generation all right, here we go. Don't make your home about your kids. Don't miss corporate worship for stupid reasons like sporting events. Not only like skipping out for a Chiefs game, I mean their sports. If it's going to conflict with Sunday mornings, just don't sign them up. Don't use the excuse that it's just for a season. Don't miss church or regular community with church or or with the church for vacations. Listen, I have missed one or two over the years, but I guarantee that our children will be better spiritually nourished when they keep their butts in the pew rather than an 11-hour car ride. And I don't care if you have a lake house it's, and it's not going to get good use if you, if you make those changes. I'd rather see you sell it. It's more important for your kids to develop a devotion to the duties of life in the church body than any relaxation or fun that you might have on your boat. Don't miss out on community because your schedule is packed with stuff for your kids. Sports, plays, clubs, 4-H, drama, campouts, whatever thing your kid participates in, I want you to ask yourself this. Do you have time for family worship? Are you constantly missing out and having to say no to things you're invited to in the church? Are you able to be hospitable to your fellow Christians? Are you so filled up with temporary earthly things, which I'm sure may be fun in the moment, but are you so full in your schedule that you can't even accept hospitality from others when they offer it? What you think you're doing is giving your kids a good life with lots of fun experiences, but what you're actually doing is training them to be self-centered men and women who idolize what they want to do, their interests, their passions, over building a genuine faith and practice that is selfless and committed. In your attempts to give your kids good things, or maybe give them what you never had, you're dooming them to a life that discounts the importance of that heritage of faith that you have been given. And you say, Coleman, that's not true. Can't we have fun as a family? Can't my family do fun things? Not if it costs their souls. You can't. And let me tell you, most kids who have a good life like I just described, they walk away from that heritage of faith. Not because they don't think it's important, but because you taught them with your lifestyle that everything out there is better. They don't desire your faith. They desire what you taught them to desire. We can't guarantee our children will walk in faith one day. But you can bet that if you have not done what you have been called to, that is to train them up in the faith, you haven't shown them the importance of the faith with your life, then you have played an instrumental part in their rejection of it. Parents, God elects the people of faith. But he also determines the families we have been given. And he lays out clear means that he intends to use toward that end. Let us not be caught as those who would speak words of faithfulness, yet teach dead and faithless lives to damned children. Okay. Kids, this one's for you. you. Old and young. Your application, children, is to look to the faith of faithful parents. Look to the faith of faithful parents. Listen, you kids are a blessing. Psalm 127 calls you a heritage from the Lord and a reward. Did you know that? Did you know that you're a reward? You can tell your parents that today. So be that. Honor your father and mother. When you see the faithfulness of your parents, honor them. When mom and dad bring you week in and week out to church, that's a blessing. If you have faithful grandparents, that's a blessing. I'm going to tell you all a story, okay? We all like stuff, right? But especially kids. Kids love stuff. We all love to get presents. And we actually have a time coming up next month that most kids love because they get a bunch of presents, right? Christmas might be most kids' favorite holiday, but I have to tell you something. Christmas, Christmas was not my favorite holiday growing up. See, growing up, we didn't have a whole lot of money. Mom and dad worked really hard. They took really good care of my sister and I, but we just didn't have a lot of money. When I was a kid, as we all do, right, I would talk to my friends, and almost all of them, they they had a lot more money than us, and that meant that at Christmas, they would get almost everything that they wanted. And you know how it is, you talk to your friends, and everyone wants to talk about their cool new stuff, and I kind of came up with this plan where I would just list out what I got from every family, family member altogether, so grandparents, aunts, uncles, mom and dad, the presents they gave us at dad's Christmas party at work. I really just wanted to keep up with the other kids. But I remember one year, and I say this to my shame, I was devastated. I don't know if I've ever told my parents this story or not, but I still remember. My sister and I only had one gift under the tree for each of us one year. And I thought to myself when I saw that, oh no, how am I going to keep up with my friends this year? And I remember being disappointed even after opening it that year, and it was hard to keep up with my friends that year. Don't get me wrong. I didn't understand it at the time, and neither did the other kids when I told them what I got. See, mom and dad, they wanted nothing more than to give us a true faith. We didn't have a lot of stuff. We had a lot of peanut butter and jelly. Mom and dad made a lot of sacrifices for us. They knew that the public school that we had available was going to literally teach us to hate God rather than to love him. And they knew that they couldn't afford a Christian school. So we did something really weird at that point. Mom stayed home, which wasn't weird, but This is going to be funny to a lot of you kids. We did something like really, really weird at that point. We homeschooled. Um, But Dad didn't get paid that well for the work that he did either. We just didn't have money. (laughs) But today, I cherish that Christmas now in my memory. I only got one present. I wanted toys. I wanted Legos and cars and a Super Nintendo. But my parents gave me something far better wrapped under the tree for each of us was a Bible. And that Bible represented a deep heritage of faith. Mom and dad wanted to give us, they wanted to give us everything else, but they made sure we had the word of God. Kids, you should want the faith of your parents. I grew up in a time where it was really cool to reject that idea Because we all felt like we needed to make it our own. You need to reject that idea. Honor your parents and share their faith with them. Okay. Last application for this section, last category. I want to talk to first generation Christians here. Here's my application for you create a new heritage. Listen, you have a disadvantage. You do still have a responsibility, though. Don't let the lack of a faithful family keep you down or discourage you. This is where the beauty of the church comes in. You might feel like you don't know the things that a child actually should. And here's the deal <laughs> you might be right, but that doesn't change the sincerity of your faith. If Christ has called you, it's real. And you can take great comfort in the sincerity of your faith, even in your ignorance. You don't need to be ashamed, but you should lean in. You might feel awkward, like an outsider, like you just don't fit in, but that's no reason to walk away. It's a reason to lean in. Come and join the heritage of faith. Lean into the household of God. Be humble and learn. When your brother tries to teach you, you should listen. They've probably worked out some of the kinks that you're trying to work through right now. Listen, you have the privileged opportunity to build a brand new heritage in your family. Where there was once darkness, the light of the gospel has broken into your home. And it's begun to set it straight. You may be the only Christian in your home. 1 Corinthians 7.14 says, For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Now, that's not to say they are made holy in the sense of being saved automatically or anything like that, but that the light of the gospel now has a special, privileged place in that house in such a way that it has a real effect on even those who have not yet professed belief. They've been set apart. What a great honor you have to be the bringer of that gospel light. So lean into God's word. Build a heritage of faith. Start with your home. Lean on your church. Commit yourself to the Lord. Now we move into the last section of our passage as Paul reminds Timothy of something in verses 6 to 7. Here at the end of our passage, it's the end of Paul's greeting. And up until now, he's reminded Timothy of the great relationship they have with one another, founded on faith. He's remembered their shared heritage of faith together in the household of God as evidenced by Timothy's sincere faith. And now, with this in view, Paul gets to his purpose. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Timothy was set apart for a specific work. Though he has a shared heritage of faith, he, like each of us, is called to play a specific part. Now, given the context, this passage likely refers to this Unique gifting given to Timothy at the time of Paul laying hands on him. And this is speaking specifically to his work as an elder, I believe. Many of you know that when elders are installed or ordained in a church, the elders will often lay hands on the new elder and pray over him, ask God's blessing on him and his work. Some of you may even remember this happening with me here at Proclaim. And our passage today shows that. There's a long line of succession going all the way back. We see that Moses laid his hands on Joshua as Joshua was the one to succeed him, similar to the way that Paul has with Timothy. With that context, I want you to see that much of this section and much of the book of Second Timothy is aimed squarely at gospel ministers or elders. However, this doesn't mean that there's no Relevance or application for others. All scripture is profitable in many ways. So while Timothy may have a specific application here, there are principles that undergird these passages for everyone. Paul is encouraging Timothy to fan into flame, or to fan the flame rather, the gift that God has given him. This is not just a generic gospel flame he's talking about. Yes, it is true that we should fan the flames of the gospel in our lives, but this is specific to his gifting, to the specific works that God has prepared beforehand for Timothy. And Timothy needs that encouragement right now because frankly ministry is hard. The calling that Timothy has on his life is weighty. Paul takes in or talks in multiple places In his last letter to Timothy about the weight of eldership, so Paul is writing to encourage Timothy in light of all that weight. Fan the flame, Timothy. I know that flame is there, but you have to grow it. Fuel it. Give it strength. God will give you what is needed for its success. This is a great call to all of us men who bear the same calling of Timothy. Timothy. The weight of eldership is heavy. Fan the flame. God called you to it and enables you to do it. But there is a principle here, not just for elders, but for all Christians. Paul's letter to this very church, the church of Ephesus, he says that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. See, church, you are called to good works. And God has given you the gifts necessary to do them. Fan the flame. Moms and dads, husbands, wives, grandparents, electricians, deacons, landscapers, bankers, bakers, elders, IT professionals, sound guys, politicians, plumbers, whatever you have been called to, God has prepared you for ministry in that. Fan the flame how will that orient or how will you orient your life to that calling how will you glorify god with those gifts the call of paul timothy me and every other elder is unique i don't want to minimize that here but you have unique callings as well just like elders are called to do you need to improve on that to the glory of god improve on those gifts I can guarantee it's going to be hard, but God will provide what's necessary. But how, how do we know that that's going to happen? How do we know that this works? Well, because it says so right here. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Now, I think there are two different ways in which we might be tempted to actually mishandle this verse. An easy way would be to simply chalk this up to saying, well, God just makes us bold. Like this is simply about some disposition that's being talked about here of power, of love, self-control, as opposed to a disposition that's fearful. But I think there's more going on here. The other way we might be tempted to handle this sounds more appealing, I think, because we think, well, if we just put some gospel paint on it and we forget all the specifics, then somehow we've actually done better. We say, oh, well, you know, the spirit, lowercase s, is talking about the shared spirit, uppercase s, and this kind of just kicks everything into some upper story of reality that doesn't actually have much for us to do. So what is it? Well, I think it's kind of a little bit of neither and a little bit of both. I know that that sounds confusing. It was in preparation, but let me try to explain. In some sense, the shared Holy Spirit that indwells all believers in this heritage of faith, in this view, it has real effects on our lives. The Holy Spirit, it doesn't imbue, in this case, his ministers with cowardice, but rather the Holy Spirit gives them power and love and self-control. See, no man on his own possesses the disposition necessary, the firmness, the fidelity To complete the task given him as an elder, yet, by the Holy Spirit, a man has been given this very thing, empowered for the ministry he is called to. Gospel ministers must have a spirit like this. Cowardice is unacceptable. So too, power without love or self discipline will destroy the work of the minister. And this is vitally important because this characteristic actually distinguishes Timothy apart from the false teachers whom he was charged to engage. They were fanatical and reckless, and as Calvin says, they would fiercely boast of having the Spirit of God, but the evidence was against them. Calvin continues, for that reason, he, Paul, expressly states that this powerful energy, the one given to Timothy— is moderated by soberness and love. So Paul is saying to Timothy, fan the flame, Timothy. Make it white hot. But listen, it's the minister's job to be a furnace for the shaping of the people of God, not a forest fire. And principally, that same Holy Spirit in every believer provides the kind of fighting spirit for the good works to which you have been called. Not many of you are called to be an elder, but God has called you to some form of ministry in your life. To your spouse, your kids, your neighbor, your lifting buddy, your co-workers, maybe your estranged family. Whatever it is, as Timothy is called to fan his flame so you should fan the flame in your life. Do not live in a spirit of fear, rather fear God and serve him joyfully. We are all called to gospel work. Timothy's job in that might be different than yours, but every one of us bears a weight in the fight for the crown. My encouragement to you today is to fan that flame. Remember the source of the flame Remember it and look to the spiritual heritage which you have been given or that which you've been made a part of. Remember, the gospel ministry you have been called to might be difficult. But just like Timothy, our shared faith encourages and sustains us in gospel ministry. Let's pray.